0: Vanessa Sinclair and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is anthropologist Ethan Clark presenting a talk he gave at the conference Rewriting the Future on June 1st, 2019 at Brunenberg Castle, South Tyrol, Italy.
1: Thank you for the intro. So where do myths fit in to a secular framework? Can secular individuals and a secular society make use of magical thinking without necessarily utilizing any of the trappings of it? And more importantly, Can you speak with Laura? Sure. Uh, do they already do it unconsciously? Yes, Uh, obviously yes Um, because myths and metaphysical thinking occupy an adaptational advantage. They help us create a framework for the world. They help us make sense of collective tragedy, collective memory, and help us understand things in a way that just the facts can't. So I'm going to be delving into a case study of a particular collective tragedy and how we formed a collective memory to understand it better than the truth alone. The Vietnam War occupies a special place within the collective American consciousness. It is at once a symbol of pride and futility, an icon of our shortcomings as a force for global intervention, but also our tenacity to, heavy air quotes, do the right thing. It was a proxy war fought between the East and the West as a display of ideological strength. Communist pride and unity against capitalist technology and individualism. But as the war dragged on, it became a cause and a symptom of America's growing pains as well. A military conflict fought in Southeast Asia became a metaphorical screen onto which to project and make sense of the changing attitudes of a nation. The collective desire on the part of the American people to understand and explain what happened in such a muddled war and what purpose Western ideology serves in the modern world is what accounts for the breadth of media based on the Vietnam conflict. Even before the war's end, Hollywood began to produce films based on the foray. foray. And as the war came to its conclusion and entered into the field of memory, these films became more nuanced, exploring and analyzing themes of technological innovation, American exceptionalism, colonialism, and the role of traditional American masculinity. These films also provided catharsis to a rattled public still trying to make sense of what they had seen and heard from Vietnam. As a result, a gestalt has been created, one that remembers the war as a chaotic meat grinder where innocent Americans were exploited by a knowing and corrupt government to fight in a saber-rattling contest. It depicts the confusion and horror of asymmetrical warfare in a dense environment. It shows the surreal experience of war. But it does so through the lens of mythos. The war fought in Vietnam and the war fought in Philippine jungles on a film set twenty years after are two different but nonetheless impactfully real conflicts. The projected image of Vietnam has become the collective memory for it and this imagined battlefield has found global acceptance. Before the 1960s it is unlikely that most Americans would have been able to identify Vietnam on a map. Indochina was one of several French colonies and if the region were to appear in film it was more likely than not as a little more than an exotic backdrop for a romance or adventure movie. Rarely were these films in, interested in any semblance of accuracy. Instead, Southern California substituted a Southeast Asian jungle and wicker furniture was abundant, shorthand for "where in the colonies. All of this changed, however, following the defeat of the French and the rise of communism in the region. By the end of the 1950s, Vietnam was a household name. You already had American advisors there at that point. Hollywood has become the de facto authority on the Vietnam War experience, surpassing documentaries and newsreels within the media pantheon when it comes to offering a glimpse of the real war, particularly for those born after the conflict. Films weave into the memories of those who were there and those who watched the war on TV as it happened, intertwining with documented realities and constructing a hybrid of fact and fiction. Hollywood has formed several narratives about the experience, the brutality of combat, the futility of war, the victimization of direct action grunts, and the Vietnam veteran as an individual wrapped in wisdom yet scarred. The veteran's experience is regarded in many ways as incommunicable, with the Vietnam War unrepresentable, a theme borrowed from discussions of the Holocaust. By embracing this, a sympathetic viewpoint, the myths of the Vietnam War have become draped in allegory and poetic device. Michael Hare can perhaps be considered the most influential wartime correspondent during the conflict. Writing for Esquire, he reported using a dreamy and surreal style, fast-talking and telling stories that were sharp-witted, larger than life, and filled with literary images. He would compile his experiences into the journalistic book come memoir Dispatches in 1977. The book arguably inspired a generation of writers, as well as being influential in the screenplays for several films about the war. Hare intentionally wrote in a cinematic fashion. In 1978 he said of it, in any other war they would have made movies about us too, Dateline Hell, Dispatch from Hong uh, Dong Ha, but Vietnam is too awkward. Everyone knows how awkward, and if people don't want to hear about it, uh, you know they're not going to pay money to sit there in the dark and have it brought up. So we have all been compelled to make our own movies, as many movies as there are correspondents, and this is mine. Excuse me. Hare's work proved so resonating that he was contracted by Francis Ford Coppola to co-write the screenplay for Apocalypse Now in 1979. While the film was not the first about the Vietnam War, it has proven to be one of the most influential and was the first of its kind to attempt a highly realistic treatment of the war. It served as a codifier for the thematic elements of future epic high art treatments of the war such as Full Metal Jacket, which Hare also co-wrote, and Platoon. Apocalypse Now blends fact with fiction. Many of the vignettes featured in the film are adapted from the experiences of Hare and co-writer John Milius's veteran friends. For example, the scene in which our protagonist, Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen, joins a group of besieged marines on the banks of a river. Willard encounters a marine with a modified M79 grenade launcher, who draws the weapon and aims towards an NVA fortification. Relying only on sound to identify his targets, he fires, obliterating the position. This scene was one actually witnessed by Michael Hare during his work. Given the surrealness of the actual war, it is hard to see where documentary ends and drama begins. This was embraced by many filmmakers who likened their experiences filming to those had during the actual war. Coppola said of the delays long time spent by the cast and crew in the Philippine jungle, and the adverse weather conditions they faced, that, and I quote, my film is not a movie. My film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It was crazy. We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little, we went insane. Directly referencing critiques of wartime administration, experiences of veterans, and themes from Apocalypse Now, Coppola even documented the filmmaking experience in Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Platoon, another film very much worth delving into, has been lauded as one of the most realistic depictions of the Vietnam War by many, including veterans, who say that it captures a great deal of detail with regards to combat experiences as well as the mundanity and boredom of war. Director Oliver Stone, who was himself a veteran, presented the film as autobiographical, showing his wartime photos in marketing. Additionally, Stone had claimed that he had been at at war, and I quote, with executives to produce the film and had hired former marine captain Dale Dye to put the actors through a training routine in the Philippine jungle where the film would be shot. They hauled and ate infamous sea rations and crawled through red clay, emulating the experience of the war as best as they could. Actor Tom Berenger said of the experience, we didn't have to act, we were there. Platoon was able to convince the public that it was the real war. It's accurate in a great many ways, but highly dramatic, showcasing the murder, rape, and destruction of Vietnam by the 25th Infantry Division. Platoon is a morality play between good and evil set against the backdrop of Vietnam, It is about a young man's and a nation's loss of innocence. Given the impactful nature of Platoon and Apocalypse Now, as well as their fantastic artistry, it is unsurprising that the public saw them as emblematic of reality. The war also ruptured America's understanding of its place in the world. No longer was the US a universal positive force. Rather, it could make mistakes or fall short of its goals. The Vietnam War, has not been remembered as a battle between good and evil. Instead, it was a nuanced foray into a country that had already shaken off one colonial power, and it was a sink for money and lives. The American people questioned what degree they had played in what was quickly regarded as a tragedy. Kids didn't want to play with G.I. Joes anymore. Their sales plummeted. Instead, focusing on fantasy-themed toys, in the 1970s and the 1980s, people wanted escapism. On April 23, 1975, within a week of the fall of Saigon, President Ford gave a speech at Tulane University, during which he pleaded with the public to halt the national debate surrounding the Vietnam War, stating that Americans cannot regain their pre-war sense of pride by refighting a war that is finished. To a degree, this appeal echoed a collective sense of national fatigue that demanded a sense of healing and closure. Though the war fought in the celluloid jungles is fought and refought, its meanings and effects have been changed with the times, reflecting a healing process. The spate of films made about the Vietnam War tended to represent or yeah, tended to represent it in an uncritical light. The first spate, that is, foregoing analysis for action. In many ways, they followed the same structure as World War II films, wherein valiant and macho heroes strike out righteously against tyranny. While they paint US soldiers in a positive light, they do little to address the experiences of military personnel in the Vietnam War. They include the action epic The Green Berets, set in 1968 at the height of the war, starring John Wayne. These films offer little in the way of analysis, instead focusing on spectacle, with Vietnam primarily serving as a tropical backdrop. In the late 70s, we saw a selection of critical, morally ambiguous films, such as the aforementioned Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro. The era also saw the emergence of a new archetype, the Hollywood Vietnam vet, a crazed, sad junkie twisted by his wartime experience. The psychotic veteran was one of the few avenues for the vet to be redeemed and readmitted back into American society without totally abandoning his past. Dangerous loner anti-hero or unstable villain. Instead of a black hat, the antagonists of 1970s television wore an old fatigue jacket covered in peeling unit patches. However, despite his violence, he was not totally unsympathetic. The Nam Vets' rage was not something he would directly release upon Americans. He was not here during a psychotic break or even a uh, predetermined and premeditated scheme. He was still in the shit. Thus, the Vietnam vet becomes a victim, even as a murderer, psychologically broken by the government he trusted. It let America cope with collective primal anger and confusion of witnessing the first televised war, one which we could not even agree on the outcome of. The tragic Vietnam veteran became a surrogate for the country's collective trauma and guilt, ironically, perhaps partially due to its treatment of veterans. The phantasmagorical veteran has, was thus a ghost haunting America as much as the mythical special forces operator haunted the jungles of former Indochina, channeling his rage into righteousness. In 1977's Rolling Thunder, an ex-army major and former POW survived the torture of criminals due to him facing similar treatment at the hands of the NVA. Travis Bickle of Taxi Driver in 76. Well, he's somewhat of a deconstruction, but no less fits the archetype. He is a hero on a fluke. He is sexually frustrated and angry. He could have been an assassin, but he went down as a vigilante. The film shows that he is a heinous man. The people he kills, though criminals, are shown suffering, and he is shown to be genuinely insane. He traumatizes the girl instead of winning her heart, and he is no hero. But television in the 80s was slightly kinder. The A-Team and Magnum P.I. saw veterans as toughened and skilled because of the war these characters tend to rely, uh, to rarely have psychological issues due to their past experiences, though those experiences still figured into their backstory. There was also a trend in family programs and sitcoms wherein characters would happen to be veterans, but it wasn't factored into the personality or storyline. Their past remained alien and separate from their uh, present experience, perpetuating the mythical qualities of the conflict. Now, the Rambo series deserves special mention. Though the protagonist is a psychologically damaged veteran, he is treated sympathetically. Not only that, he shows pride in serving, but objects to his treatment at home and the government's treatment of him. John Rambo represents a surprisingly complex character. In Rambo First Blood, 1985, he refuses a medal after rescuing American POWs on behalf of the U.S. government, claiming that he just wants the country to, quote, love them as much as they loved it. While this can easily be read as nationalistic pandering, it communicates the tenderness of American patriotism in the post-Vietnam era and a desire to reunite and collectively grieve. Despite Rambo's adolescent machismo, he wants to be loved. Betrayed and coming of age in the Vietnam era, the American public was traumatized, and it realized in its collective zeitgeist that it could do wrong, that a war could be unrighteous. It became self-aware, and it was scared. Scared to know that heroes can die and Americans can lose, and that it can all be so meaningless. Under the machismo, under the anger, there was a desire not from veterans, but from the whole nation for acceptance, for unconditional love, and the realization that it wouldn't necessarily come. Veterans came home from World War II to massive celebration. In contrast, Vietnam vets trickled in one by one. Some via underfunded VA hospitals, labeled social misfits and outcasts by television and film. Even when positively represented, they expected the praise of their fathers but were met with derision instead. The sharp contrast between films set during the Second World War and the Second Indochina War is striking. World War II films generally rely on notions of American heroism. Germans were totally irredeemable and the Japanese were stuck in ancient custom. We learned that the Axis was full of spies while the Allies fought face to face. The Allies were paragons of justice and the Axis was admittedly totalitarian. Americans respected each other and even American and British civilians wanted to help fight the war effort from the home front. Of course, German and Japanese civilians were glossed over. Of note is that according to the selective service system, only 25% of Vietnam veterans were draftees, whereas in World War II, 66% war. War films, at least those made in the period between World War II and Vietnam, raised a generation of loyal patriots. Soldiers went to Vietnam with images from World War II movies in their heads. Michael Hare, going back to him, wrote of it, I keep thinking of all the kids who got wiped out by the 17 years of the war movies before coming to Vietnam to get wiped out for good. You don't know what a media freak is until you've seen the way a few of these grunts would run around during a fight when they knew a camera crew was nearby. They were actually making war movies in their heads. The first few times I got fired at or saw combat deaths nothing really happened. It was the same familiar violence only moved over to another medium. Many of the men fighting during Vietnam were still in their teens. These were ostensibly child soldiers. The level of violence that surrounded those in active combat and the toll that level of stress takes awakened nostalgic images of an imagined World War II. It is somewhat ironic how committed journalists like Michael Hare have been to leaving everything as raw as possible to respond to the sterility of the World War II narrative when this rawness would itself be used to construct what is in many ways just as fictitious a tale. Vietnam was a war, not a movie. To quote a veteran, I lost my footing and went under the water, and came up and out, screaming, this ain't a war movie, this ain't a John Wayne movie. I started to laugh. Vietnam wasn't a war movie. The World War II movies could no longer reflect reality, black out the pain and anger, and justify me as the good American who had come to rescue the Vietnamese by killing Vietnamese. They were really propaganda films. The war was confusing and dividing. Its end raised questions about the very concepts that could help organize and explain it away. Imperialism, technological exceptionalism, the American masculinity and machismo as an infallible force, they were all put to trial. It still lacks closure, and there's still debate over whether the United States simply withdrew or was defeated, and the exact figures of how many individuals, let alone Americans, perished during the war are still unknown. It is telling that the POW slash MIA flag still holds such a vivid place in public memory. In the 1980s and 1990s, we see a period of forgiveness and a desire for healing in cinema. Prominently born on the 4th of July, based on the memoir of the same name, offers the experience of Ron Kovac. Kovac starts as a suburban kid from Long Island and is raised to trust his country absolutely. During his time in the war, he experiences the horror of a civilian massacre and later mistakenly kills a member of his own platoon. He suffers grievous injury and after nearly dying is returned home to an abusive veterans affairs hospital. In the end, his experiences in Vietnam leave him physically and psychologically ravaged, much like the nation. Kovac becomes cynical and callous, turning against his own government and opposes the war. He has achieved his coming of age at the cost of innocent bliss. Kovac's loss of innocence parallels that of the US. The narratives of ambiguity and confusion surrounding the vietnam war have had a lasting legacy on the american identity documents and fictional films set during the wars in iraq and afghanistan following grunts seem to evoke the raw viscerality of films such as apocalypse now these films represent a sort of emotional pornography in which the audience becomes the soldier this is also true of video games as well Semi-fictional accounts such as Generation Kill in 2008 depict the struggle of the Marine First Recon Battalion as uh, they sought to reach Baghdad in a Coppola-esque journey into the heart of the desert. In a feudal conflict, short on supplies and becoming increasingly disillusioned, the mythos surrounding the Vietnam War is a cautionary tale. But the myth does not tell the full story. A popular veteran's bumper sticker says Vietnam was a war, not a movie. As realistic as a film like Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July can strive to be, it does not express the totality of the war or the military experience. Almost never mentioned in film is the service of the South Vietnamese, the air van, in the war. The experiences of military personnel outside of direct combat positions on the ground, the involvement of women in the military, or the life of communist troops, who often were as much aliens in the jungle as U.S. soldiers were. While these stories are perhaps not as exciting as those about marines in the jungle, they represent at least a fraction more of the conflict in its totality. A 1980 Harris survey of vets revealed that 91 were glad they served. 91% that is. 74 percent said they enjoyed their time in the service. 80 percent disagreed with the statement the United States took unfair advantage of me. Additionally, more than 70 percent said they did not often dream that they were back in Vietnam. Furthermore, in 1982, the Department of Labor statistics stated that Vietnam vets were no more likely to be unemployed than non-veterans and In 1981, the Bureau of Justice concluded that, on the whole, veterans were less likely than non-veterans to be in prison. While the horror of war is a trying and lasting experience, and it is likely that many instances of mental illness such as PTSD go undiagnosed and unreported, approximately 20% of Vietnam vets experienced emotional difficulties upon returning home due to the war. While that is roughly a quarter of those who served, It is by no means indicative of the unstable walking weapons, the Bickles and Rambos, of the silver screen. The stories told about war are often exceptional, and that is precisely why they are told. Vietnam was a horrific war, as all wars are. But to reduce the veteran to a permanent victim of circumstance, someone without a future only harms them, and strips them completely of agency. And it does not allow those who have suffered strongly to move forward. It is especially unfortunate for those who did come home shaken by their experiences in the war that the Vietnam veteran has become so fragmented and symbolically reconstructed. A naive child, a warmonger or hippie, a savior or atrocity organizer, a super soldier or baby killer, a victim of his government but rarely a genuine person. Vietnam has been made into a screen. A nation transformed by a conflict into an idea. The mythical Vietnam is just that. The abstracted war of interpretation has been important in ways very different from the true history of the conflict in coping with the revelations that the Cold War brought. A war that fundamentally reorganized the landscape of human culture. East, West, socialist, capitalist, post-colonial, mass communication, the first world, and the third, conceptual shifts with vast implications. Culture is shaped not only by what happened, but also by what we think happened. And the U.S. needed a praxis to accept the ambiguity that the information age would bring. The Vietnam War that is seen on the silver screen is not the one fought in Indochina, but it is a simulacrum of it in which the collective processing of modernity can be explored. Vietnam or America's phantom war in Vietnam was fought for a different purpose that has been just as instrumental in shaping the modern world.
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk by Ethan Clark, given at the conference, Rewriting the Future, A Hundred Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis, held at Brunnenberg Castle, South Tyrol, Italy on June 1st, 2019. Ethan Clark is an anthropologist who earned his degree from UC Santa Cruz, graduating summa cum laude. His primary areas of study are war and conflict, art and visual culture, technology, and evolutionary biology. For more, please visit our publisher's website, that's Trapart.net, that's T R A P A R T.net, or my website, Dr. Vanessa Sinclair.net. perfect disorder. Who are you? What on earth are you doing here? I suspect the biggest thrill is anthropological after all. Nudity and a temporary upheaval of the progress as fast and clear as the formation of new language. Utters a sentiment, conveys something new. Step on in honey, don't fear the darkness. As will your body. Not knowing exactly who is stroking it. After working on her mouth, the sea for washing up nothing more than an occasional piece of wretched seaweed between her legs, she moved and wriggled she blamed it for being too blue and for always lapping at the same bit of shore her hair victor was short-circuited by his own lurid desire and the goddess Selene. In her left hand is a torch symbolizing the way she speaks. I listen to her, and I can see Diana's hunting horn. Around her orb, we see sky and sea. She isn't lying. try to follow her. What bothered me for a long time was her prostitution. Her visibility and grace for navigation and keeping time. Duty to lend yourself. Your hands are not your own, nor are your breasts, nor most especially any of your bodily orifices, can't feel me, no one can, a woman saying, with which we may explore, or penetrate at will. You will remember though, was this what she had meant by so? It would be great to see her in the flesh, like psychic aspect of one's actions and relations other changes those attempted through the conscious correction of the ego's course are attempts of the will they are labors of hercules watching you rather the whip the rings Flash.